The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello and you're very welcome to the Politics Podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I was joined in studio today by Patsy McGarry, our religious affairs correspondent, Michael Kelly, who is editor of Ireland's best-selling religious newspaper, The Irish Catholic, and also by Anya Highland, who is Emeritus Professor of Education at University College Cork and was also founder of the Dawkey School Project, one of the first multi-denominational educational schools in the country in the 1970s. As the country moves on from the emphatic result of the referendum on the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. And as Irish Catholics are looking forward to the papal visit at the end of the summer, Minister for Justice Charlie Flanagan has announced plans this week for another referendum in October on removing the offence of blasphemy from the Constitution. And there may be another one again on the clause relating to the position of women in the home. In light of all this, I asked Patsy, what is the current relationship between the institutions of the state and the political establishment on the one hand and the majority religion in this country on the other? Well, we're looking clearly at a greater degree of separation rather than integration. Um, this has been happening over a period of time. Um, the referendums really, the last two referendums in particular, have illustrated publicly what's been known and happening privately for a number of decades. Ireland has been secularising, if you like, since the 1960s, probably going back to the introduction of free education by Donoghue Malley in 1967-68, when people have been educated for the first time, the majority population anyhow, without dependence necessarily on the church, particularly at second and third level. And it led, if you like, to the cultivation of a more critical attitude to the church by educated people in Ireland. Um, You could say it led to the so-called moral civil wars, beginning with contraception, continuing through divorce, into now abortion, and now into the constitution again, with these proposals to remove um, the position of the right of the woman in the home, for instance. Uh, There's even talking about removing the preamble to the Constitution itself and the issue of blasphemy, which really is a lesser issue uh, overall. So what you have really is the growth of a proper republic, if you like, where there is a proper separation in law between church and state. I mean, it doesn't mean the church will be relegated. It means it will take its place uh, among other uh, churches and indeed other religions an increasingly di- diverse Ireland and a, a, and a diverse Ireland which includes an increasing number of non-believers. And, and what should that place be? Because, I mean, actually we haven't had an established church in this country since the old Church of Ireland Anglican Church was disestablished in the late 19th century, although there was a specific reference to the Catholic Church in Article 44, which was deleted by the will of the people some, some, some decades ago. Um, other countries, many of them have established churches still. Many in Northern, Northern European countries, including our closest neighbour, has an established church. Uh, in many countries that are historically Catholic, the, the move towards a secular state was very often a painful and violent one in countries such as, such as France and Spain. What's the Irish experience and should we be aspiring to something, in your view, like the laïcité, as they describe it in France? Um, 
Inter- interestingly, next year we will mark the 150th anniversary of the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland as the state church in Ireland, which will give rise to a lot of this sort of debate and discussion, I imagine, next year. Um, we didn't have a state church in Ireland de jure, but in fact we did have one. I mean, the 1937 constitution was heavily influenced by Catholic thinking of the time, uh, not to the degree that people thought. I mean, McQuaid, who was then president of Blackrock College and became Archbishop of Dublin in 1940, uh, had been a colleague of de Valera's on the teaching staff of Blackrock for years. Uh, and he did have the ear of de Valera. Um, de Valera didn't go as far as McQuaid would have preferred. Um, particularly, I think, when it came to the recognition of other religions in the Constitution. But the Constitution of 1937 was seriously flavoured by Catholic thinking compared to the one of 1922, which, for instance, recognised divorce, which was removed in one of the first acts of the new state in the late 1920s and gave rise to that great speech by Yeats. In the Senate, Senator W.B. Yeats about his being no petty people, referring to the Church of Ireland or Anglican community in Ireland, which would be at a disadvantage if divorce was removed, which of course it was. So we had the introduction by stealth initially and by, and by fact to the 1937 Constitution of Catholic uh, teaching into the Constitution. And what's happening now is that that is being removed gradually, not necessarily to the detriment of Catholics, and shouldn't be because there'd be no imposition on Catholics to avail of contraception, which is not in the Constitution, by the way, of divorce or of abortion. In other words, what it means, it leaves it free for people who can exercise those matters in conscience and in law when they have no difficulty in doing so. Michael, I suspect you might have a somewhat different view of the history as, as, as Patsy's described it there. No, I, I wouldn't disagree or argue with uh, the history as Patsy sets it out. I think that's, that's very comprehensive and very fair, I think, wherever one might be coming from in any of these arguments. Uh, those are the facts uh, following the foundation of the state. And I suppose even before the foundation of the state, you have this strange symbiosis of Catholicism and nationalism, um, which uh, give in many ways the, 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 the impetus to the, the, the push for the foundation of the state. And then the state uh, de facto became uh, a Catholic state. It was something we were, in a sense, immensely proud of that we had created this this Ireland, uh, to use that phrase, that was Gaelic, Catholic and free. I think we know, looking back now, that uh, that, that relationship was actually very toxic and was extremely damaging towards uh, church and state. And one, one of the things that's interesting, I mean, I uh, it's not perhaps the most uh, invigorating pastime, but a pastime of mine is ecclesiastical history. And one of the things that's interesting, if you look back over the 2,000-year history of the church, it's all those moments when actually the church thinks that it's immensely powerful and it's in bed with the state, actually when it's at its worst and actually its capacity to witness is at its worst. Christianity at its core, Christianity uh, more than anything else should be something that's a countercultural witness. Well, when the thing you're lusting after is power and control and preference by the state, then then you're always going to be in trouble. And I think we're seeing the outworking of that now. And I think there's a lot more of this to come from the point of view. I think Irish people are radically renegotiating what the relationship between church and state means at that national level, but also at an individual level. I mean, I've seen a lot of the coverage from overseas in the wake of the referendum was very... I mean, I think it was very one-dimensional in a very sense. Very simplistic as very well. Very simplistic. Catholic yeah. Ireland's gone and this is the new secular Ireland. It's not as simple as that. Irish people are not as simple as that. Irish Catholics are not as simple as that. It's true that people are dramatically renegotiating what it means to be an Irish Catholic, but it would be wrong to see, I suppose, the rejection of the excesses of the past as a rejection of ev- everything that has been traditional and Irish and Catholic by the standards of Western Europe. I mean, take one measure, it's a crude measure, admittedly, but by the standards 
centres of Western Europe, mass attendance here is phenomenal. About mm. one in three Irish people uh, report that they go to mass at least once a week. And even al- uh, even allowing then for, you know, a few porkies, that's still, compared with any of the traditional Catholic countries of Western Europe, quite high. It, it certainly is. On you. You've been involved as an educationalist in in many of these issues, and education, I think, particularly right now, seems to be the cutting edge of where of where many of these debates are are occurring and will occur over the next while. And through your involvement in in uh, the early stages of multi denominational um, education in Ireland and and your work in universities, looking back over your experience with that, how does the Ireland in which you were initiating the Dalkey School project in the in the mid nineteen seventies compare with the Ireland of today? Yeah, I guess for me, it, you know, it's a really amazing transformation. And it came in many ways very quickly. Um, 19, the, the Dorky School Project opened 40 years ago this year. So it's the 40th anniversary of the opening. And those of us who were founder members, you know, we were really pariahs in society. We were, people didn't understand at all what we were about. They were, there was a very strong view that we were about to kick the church out of education. All we were looking for was a, a choice for, a, at that time, a very small number of people. We were asking for one or two schools. Uh, it took 10 years to get four schools. The first four schools weren't set up for the best part of 10 years. And then after that, society began to change. That was, uh, But it's the last 10 years I see the biggest difference, t- t- 10 to 15 years. And the speed of change is was unexpected. I mean, we had um, carried out some statistical exercises in forecasting demand for multi-denomination education when we were trying to convince the Department of Education. And at that time, if you had told me there would be 40 schools, one school on average a year, I would have thought we would have been doing very well. Now, in fact, it's 80 schools now, but rapidly growing um, and really a very significant demand for multi-denominational But is it possible at all? One of the commentaries that we heard in some quarters after the the referendum result Mm -hmm. was that institutional Ireland, establishment Ireland, had fallen behind the actual changes in the beliefs of of the people. And there was an expectation that even if the referendum was passed, it would be a relatively narrow narrow margin and that there would be a difficulty with with the legislation that turned out to be great, that turned out to be less so than, than, than turned out. And that the and that TDs and presumably also possibly civil servants and other gatekeepers in official Ireland hadn't kept up with the will of the people. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think Patsy's made a very interesting point. I wouldn't tie the change so much to free education, which again, actually 1967, 50 years ago this year was the introduction of free second level education or last year. Um, I would actually tie it more into the 1971 primary curriculum, which moved away from uh, a sort of um, an acceptance and, you know, everybody taught, learned the same thing. Now it was children were encouraged to question, to ask, to to be um, sort of self-learners. And there was a whole, it took a while, of course, curriculum change is very slow in Ireland and in any country, but there was a change at primary level. The Mm. teachers and the children began to question and to challenge, which was not at all part of the 1922 curriculum. I suppose I'd I'd accept that. But Patsy, you know, I mean, I'm an atheist. I believe in values of the the rationalist values of the Enlightenment. But I can see why some people would be uncomfortable with the narrative being framed in such a way that progress and education and, uh, and intellectual capability go hand in hand with a rejection of religious belief. 
Well, I think that came out of our grim history, and particularly out of what has been revealed. So uh, it was a sort of a backlash? It is, yeah. Over the last 20 years, particularly when we've had four statutory reports looking at the abuse of children by uh, Catholic-run institutions, in Catholic-run institutions and indeed by priests and parishes. We've, uh, we're awaiting another one in mother and baby homes. We have the current adoption scandal, which may be tied into the Mother and Baby Home Commission report. I mean, people in the adoption area want the remit of the Mother and Baby Home Commission extended to include that. Uh, and really, it's in that climate you have what you say. It is a reaction to those extraordinary and shocking revelations about abuses of the most vulnerable people, women and children in particular, by the most powerful, uh, supervised by the church over those decades, right up to the 1970s particularly, and indeed, which involved people who are still living, those who are abused, are among us still. People talk about some of these issues as historic. But there's no doubt, while that was an accelerant, I think there's absolutely no doubt that, that, that at all. There is a broader picture too, which is that in modernising, industrialising societies where people are more educated, we just need to look around at our fellow countries in Western Europe, that they tend to become less religious. Well, there was a Pew research Most, not study published about two weeks ago. You know, this Pew, the centre mm. of a research in Washington. And it looked at religious practice and it discovered or rather established that non-practicing Christians are by far and away the biggest majority in Western Europe. It, the, you can add all... Uh, other religions, practicing people in terms of practice, Muslims, Jews, practicing Christians, etc., atheists even, and still non-practicing Christians are the dominant ethos, if you want to use that word, uh, in the entirety of Western Europe. I have no idea what that, that ethos is. What is the well, ethos of a non-practicing Christian? Well, they values in the main, but they don't practice. They describe themselves as Christian. We have perfect <laughs> examples ourselves. The 19, uh, 2016 Constitution established that 78.4% of Irish people still tick the Roman Catholic box, for instance, despite all we've heard about the abuse and scandals. Hold that thought for a minute because I actually want to run a clip. This is from Archbishop Eamon Martin. I think it was two days after the, the referendum result. He was speaking on Ortiz this week and he was asked about the current state of, of belief in Ireland. We'll run it here. We're well aware from week to week looking at our congregations that really in Ireland now we're dealing with really I would see three groups of people. We, we do have a very committed minority uh, a remnant so to speak of people who are deeply committed to their church and deeply convicted about the teachings of their church. We also have a large group of people and we know this also from the census of course who are nominally or, or culturally Catholic who will self-identify as Catholic and who retain an affiliation with the church in some ways but who have perhaps drifted away from regular practice of their faith and, and we, we, we need to engage with and speak with these people as well. Then there's a third group of people in Ireland who have quite consciously rejected the church and who are indeed hostile to the, the teachings of the church. So really, I think as I said before, the church is in a new space. Now Michael, I found that characterisation, that tripartite characterisation fascinating. One could go into each one of them. Um, uh, um, First of all, the idea that anybody who isn't either culturally Catholic or a committed member of the faith is actively hostile to the church um, strikes me as a, a surprising and perhaps slightly worrying approach for the Archbishop. To take. Yeah, I'm not sure that's entirely what he was trying to get at. I mean, it, look, anything like that, that characterization is going to be a little bit crude. I think there's no doubt that there is among uh, a small section of the population is an extreme hostility towards Catholicism at the moment. I mean, one even finds this in the in, in the Dalt. I mean, some of the exchanges in the Dalt, if you look back over the record, I mean, these are exchanges talking about uh, Rome and uh, things like this that, that would have embarrassed you know, that the excesses of unionism in, in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, the 1980s. So well, they're in a, they're in a tradition there particularly of the left, aren't they? Of a, of a kind of really strong, you know, and anti-religiosity. And, yeah. and, you know, and we, we see that in other European countries. But 
and accepting the fact that it's you know it's a radio interview with mm. with, with with the shortcomings that that always come with those, mm. there doesn't seem to be any space there for people of goodwill who are who 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 are not Catholic who do not identify as Catholic. Well, which I, I think find I, I think in fairness to the Archbishop, if you go back to the interview, the question he was asked is about where about Catholics who disagreed with the Church on the issue of abortion. So he was, I think, specifically talking about those who right. were, okay. were traditionally so raised specifically as the challenge faced by the by, by the Church. It, it, and actually, let me ask you about that mm. because in a way, it seems to me that if you accept that characterization on yet that mm. um, that the big question is about this group which Patsy just referred to, this amorphous group who it's very difficult perhaps to tell exactly what they what they believe. Describe them as nominal Catholics, in the case of Ireland, cultural Catholics. They're close to a majority of the population now, it seems to me. And we need to know what they want in order to know how we want to organise society. For example, uh, in our educational system. Yeah, I think in my view, there is a difference between the generations. I mean, my own generation or, you know, people of the older generation, certainly I think the Archbishop is probably the middle category and the final, they either fall into the middle or the final category or obviously the first category. But I think the younger generation, they're really much more neutral, much more neutral than anything that he has envisaged. And I mean, what brought it home to me was the realisation, which I found absolutely extraordinary, totally unexpectedly, to when the Equate group carried out a survey and found that 24% of those who replied to it, these were uh, families with young children, had had their children baptised specifically to get them into school. I would never have believed that if I hadn't seen it myself in this survey. To me, I suppose if you come from an Irish Catholic background, you would think of that, no matter what your beliefs were, you wouldn't do that, I, I mean, to me. But this generation is quite, quite different. The younger generation, it's... It's totally pragmatic. They have, like, religion hasn't impinged on them in the same way yeah. as the older generation. And I think part of that's quite interesting as well. I think there are a huge number of people who go to church, go to mass every Sunday, and um, the faith doesn't greatly impinge on their lives either. I mean, the, the British sociologist of religion, uh, Grace Davy, she talks about in Britain they have this phenomenon where people, um, they believe without belonging. So she, she thinks that you have this kind of a silent majority of people who are religious believers, but they're not kind of affiliated to any church. I think in Ireland we have a strange phenomenon where we, we have people who belong but don't believe. And uh, there's all kinds of reasons for that, whether it's in, I mean, I, I don't think there's any of the past reasons of, oh, you know, you have to go to church because because your neighbours will be disappointed with you if you don't go to church. But there's all kinds of social connotations there, particularly outside of Dublin. I accept that in Dublin and probably in lots of larger urban areas, though though those things don't hold. But there is a phenomenon there, and that's a real challenge for the church because it would be much easier for the church if those people would simply walk away. But the fact is, in some ways, they've psychologically checked out, but they're still sitting in the pews. There's a couple of things in that, Patsy. One is, I I think, Fitton O'Toole wrote a piece last week about about the current state of the Catholic Church. He talked about John McGahern explaining to a neighbour in rural Ireland why he didn't go to church because he felt he'd be a hypocrite if he went and the neighbour said but sure we all go to see all the other hypocrites there that's why we go there every Sunday And the, but the other thing even in urban um, areas that strikes me and I've, we, I think anybody listening to this who lives in Ireland will recognise this phenomenon is people who um, I was very proud of myself I invented the phrase bouncy castle Catholics in a, in a column a few years ago they, they, they like the big communion party they like the family affair they like all that stuff uh, but priests and uh, and believing teachers tear their hair out because they won't see them at mass for the three or four years between those two sacraments. I think the perfect illustration of that is the demographic when you look at the figures for practicing Catholics in Ireland today. 
Um, urban Ireland, urban working class Ireland, basically, there's a complete absence almost of mass attendance, down to 2 and 3% per week. But middle class Ireland is holding up, particularly middle class urban Ireland. Dublin 4, Dublin 6, those pariah areas of the country where, where, where we used to be are still holding up in terms of religious practice. And the belief is that that's related to schools secondary schools in particular, because that's where most of the leading Catholic secondary schools in Dublin certainly are located and indeed in other parts of urban Ireland as well. So it's not necessarily a matter of faith as education yet again. But to come back to a point Michael was making earlier on about people in the Dáil and yourself, Hugh, uh, mainly lefty people giving very, very anti-Catholic speeches. I do not think we ever heard anything as anti-called Catholic as the address of Enda Kenny in the Dáil in July of 2011. Nobody would describe Enda Kenny as other than Middle Ireland a practising devout Catholic in his, in his form. And again, when the, he, he addressed uh, the Magdalene issue in February of 2013, those were two deeply powerful, very affecting, very moving speeches, born out of shocking reports, but which were delivered very emotionally from a Catholic who felt disenfranchised by the activities of his church and, and who really gave them the lash and kicked them in the shins in style and so doing, expressed what Middle Ireland really was thinking because he got a lot of support. He got some abuse, but he got mainly huge support for what he had to say. Uh, to come back then to the, the issue about young people, I think the perfect illustration of where the young are at in Ireland today and to underline Anya's view, they are baptising their kids to get them into school. When it came to the referendum, 87% of young people between the ages of 18 and 24 voted yes. 83% of those between 24 and 35 voted yes. So they're doing one, they're being very pragmatic socially because they have to be because disinvestment hasn't worked so far in Ireland. Uh, and, so, and, and in relation to that then, Archbishop, Archbishop Dermot Martin made an interesting point about the Catholic education system and it is still largely Catholic, more than 90% of primary schools clearly had failed in some of their core mission. Absolutely true, again and again and again. I mean, the churches, 96% of our primary schools are controlled by the churches in co combined. Yet we have the referendum. I mean, massive support for uh, uh, relaxation on the laws to do with abortion. I don't have to go through the whole thing similarly with divorce. So the Catholic, the Catholic ethos, if you like, is not translating, even through this education system where most people... Are, are held for the first 17 or 18 years of life is not translating into Catholic practice. So it's failed. And mm. I, I do think that both churches, the main church, the Church of Ireland and the Catholic Church, when it comes to primary and secondary level education, need to address that. And that raises a very interesting question to me, Anya, because mm. this is a politics podcast and we're looking at religion through, the, through, through, through that prism here, here today, which is, is it possible, I was reading... Um, uh, I was, reading, I was reading a piece in the Sunday Times um, quite recently by David Quinn where he was essentially, I think, arguing that both the Catholic Church and the state would benefit from a speedier divestment mm -hmm. of this historical ownership of the vast majority of schools in order for the Catholic Church, in order to be, to be, to be able to teach um, those who wanted to be taught in that way more effectively and in order to have a, 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 an education system which was more attuned to the needs of the broader mm -hmm. population as well. Yeah, I think as somebody who's been involved in the uh, Educate Together sector for 40 years, I have, while of course I supported the concept of divestment when it was first uh, mooted, I never thought it would work. And uh, I, I just felt that the whole uh, structures of, of, of primary education, the, 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 the legal setup um, was such and the way it runs and particularly the, the view that obviously if you are going to divest a Catholic school and hand it over to a non-church patron, that there has to be buy-in from the community. 
people by and large are happy with their schools. The fact that it's a Catholic school is neither here nor there for most of them if they have got their children into the school. That's the reality, I think. I'm also concerned that about, I mean, the, the recent, uh, again, I welcome the baptism barrier being removed to use that phrase that's being used but I again I don't think it's going to work I don't think it can happen I think constitutionally I was on the constitutional review group which reported in 1996 there's a very good section there about uh, how you cannot discriminate between one church and another which the legislation proposes to which do which the legislation proposes to do Jared Hogan wrote that now Jared Hogan is going to Europe now but I mean if you were in, in the appeals court or the supreme mm. court I, I think I know what the answer would be if somebody challenges that. I think it's not only might it be challenged. I wonder will the will it be signed into law? Will the Council of State have to look at it? I as a lay, I'm only a lay person in that sense. I have no legal expertise. I cannot see how that. Just for the benefit of our listeners, there's a specific requirement on Catholic schools to remove this barrier, but it does not apply to, to church, other faiths, Church of Ireland and other faiths. To minority. I attended the forum on patronage. Yes, I, I reported did. on it yes. for, for the paper yes, um, six years ago. You did indeed. And and um, and John Coolhan. I met John many times afterwards, and he was tearing his hair out and yeah. sheer frustration at yeah. the lack of effect on the ground of, dis- of dis- uh, disinvestment. I mean, the um, uh, I know the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin here and um, Bishop Leo O'Reilly of Kilmore yeah, were both favorite. very, very they much were. in favour of they it. They were. In favor. uh, I mean, during Martin's point out that seventy-five yeah. percent of the population of Dublin yeah. are Catholic, at least nominally, and yet I mean yeah. the, they still control the vast majority of primary schools. But they can't, as Anya says, get people on the ground to shift. Yeah. And there's no, there's no leadership at a local level. People see it, uh, uh, the school, it's not broke, why fix it, is the right. attitude. So, I, I mean, I don't think uh, divestment is going to work. No. I mean, as, as the mo- the, the question then is what, what would work? I mean, the implication there, well, Michael, the is that the state and church, perhaps together, would, invest, would, would, would intervene in a more proactive way. Yeah, look, I think the church has to take the lead here. I mean, uh, the, the divestment issue is this problem. Everyone is in favour of it at a national level, but not until it affects their local schools. So, so that, that's the issue. So I think the church here needs to take the lead. The church needs to be realistic. Dermot Martin likes to talk about, you know, that various referenda being a reality check for the church. They are a reality check for the church. And the reality is that he who tries to hold everything in the end holds nothing. So the church trying to hold 90% of schools as if somehow those schools are authentically Catholic, as if somehow the vast majority of people who send their kids there want to be sending their children to a Catholic school. No one in the church believes that. And I think it's time to just start saying things like that Do you agree with Patsy's point? that there will be strong resistance locally on the ground from parents and families? I think what you, what you need there on the ground is you need strong leadership. You need the local priest. You need local community people saying, look, this is no longer our reality or this no longer meets our reality. We do not need three Catholic primary schools in this parish anymore. Perhaps we need one. I think if you have that local leadership and, you know, talking to a lot of priests, I think a lot of priests are up for that. The last thing they want is spending their evenings going around chairing boards of management meetings about very, very complex staffing Frankly, issues. for most parish priests, it's a pain. Yeah, it is, it is for a sure. source of huge rows locally, politically, whatever. And they don't they have would, the expertise they for would it. Be delighted to get rid of it. The difficulty is, again, the, the, the absence of priests is going to be something they'll have to address anyhow very, very, very shortly. So you'll be, de- be dealing with lay Catholics, which can be even more difficult politically. Uh, and who are less you're saying they're even worse than the priests, Pat. <laughs> yes, is that what you're saying? I, I wouldn't even say the priests are even worse, frankly. <laughs> but I, certainly some of the people who would put themselves into those sort of positions can be far more difficult to deal with than any priest would be. I mean, the desperate. difficulty is, well, there's no one in charge of lay Catholics. I yeah. mean, at least if you have a difficult priest, a bishop will step <laughs> in. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and is there... Is is there an issue on it at all with all the 
these schools are almost exclusively funded by the by the state or by some combination yeah. of the state and private fees in the in the case of those well, fancy they're, they're fancy south side schools which Matthew was referring to yeah um but um the churches own the land for the most part they the own parishes, the property yeah. the parish um, owns the land. and That's is there uh, and when you were looking at this, is there a challenge with that in terms of the transfer of those assets? Oh, yeah, assets? there's a huge challenge. I mean, it's not impossible, but Do there is a huge greedy? challenge. I mean, going right back to the, 19th, the early 19th century when the national school system was set up, it was set up on the basis that the land on which the schools would be built was to be privately owned. Initially, by landlords, they had assumed... But, of course, that didn't happen. And it was the church, the churches generally who owned the land. Uh, they get about now 90, 95%, up to 100% of the cost of the building. Uh, now, that from has changed in, by, from the state. Yeah. So that the building, if you like, is belong to the state, but it's on the land that belongs to the church. And what can you do? So, uh, and there is, I mean, again, um, I, I was of the view for a very long time that uh, when a school, that it could be divested quite easily in that the, the minister ha- was a party to the official lease of a school and that he had a role in this. And certainly in the old days, that's how it would have been perceived. But I gather that more recent legal advice is like, it's the land that determines yeah. it and that's well, ironically the original national school system in 1831 was, was set mixed. up on a non-denominational Indeed. basis it was meant to be it, a mixed system and yeah. what happened was it was the Protestant churches became worried that they would be swapped and so they were the ones who insisted on denominational education and of course I think it's good we finally got to blame the Protestants at some point in this podcast. I think the challenge here politically as well, though, I think is around the the financing of the schools. I mean, it's true that the day-to-day running costs of the schools are, you know, by and large met by the state. But you talk, uh, particularly around Dublin, you talk to most parish priests, they are fundraising constantly to pay heating bills, to pay electricity bills. So, I mean, is the state going to take on all of that? Ringsend Parish in Dublin, the parish bingo there held every weekend pays the heating bill of the local school. So the state is going to have to step up with more money if it's serious. Isn't there a broader problem here, though, to broaden it out a a little bit, Michael, which is that, as you referred to the fact that there isn't a structure or leadership among among lay Catholics, Mm -hmm. so you're dependent on a dwindling number of, of clergy, that... In other Catholic countries, there's a tradition of having, say, a Christian Democratic Party, mm. which essentially represents the interests and the values of that portion of the population who, who, who hold to those beliefs. And because of the sort of the universal control exerted by the Catholic Church for so long through, uh, through a clergy, we, we don't have that here. And now as that disappears away like snow in a ditch, what, what are we left with on the Catholic side to represent, in, in the words of some people after the referendum, who speaks for the 34%? Yeah, I mean, there was never any need for it, I suppose, because we were such a homogenous society. I mean, the idea in the 1920s or the 1930s of a Christian Democratic Party would have been absolutely foolish because, you know, that was really uh, all, all of the parties. Uh, I think the the challenge now is politically, who does represent that uh, that 34%? If you like, Fine Gael in the last general election got about 26% of the vote. So the 724,000 people who voted no, you know, they're, they are not a, a small group or, you know, are Bishop Martin described, used the word remnant in his, his clip, which I think is interesting because if you look at the Bible, the word remnant is always used in Israel to, to mark a small community which, which, which regrows. But I think there, there is a huge challenge. Where do those Catholics go politically? But yet I think the other side of that debate is any attempt to try to galvanise that or try to represent that has failed dismally. I mean, we've had very, very small attempts, things like the, the Christian Solidarity Party, which, you know, never really got any more than a couple of hundred votes nationally. 
internationally. Um, even things like Renewa, you know, which on the face of it at least were, were much more credible and even after the departure of the, their leader Lucinda Creighton actually I think moved even more into that kind of Catholic space and it hasn't it hasn't done anything for them. I mean I think they have a couple of councillors elected around the country but they were elected as independents and later joined Renewa. So I think we do have this dilemma now. We do have all of these people who by and large probably think at least their social values uh, or socially conservative values are not represented by the political mainstream but they don't seem to be they don't seem to be drifting well, elsewhere. To mobilize, mobilize around, around those issues. I mean, what, like one of the questions is, I mean, Patsy was quoting the numbers earlier about the number of people who voted yes in the referendum. The remarkable thing to me was that 30,000 18 to 24 year olds actually voted no in the referendum. So if you were an 18 to 24 year old and you voted no in the referendum, you are fairly mobilised around this issue. But where is the thing that gathers those people together? Because a groundswell of 30,000 people in their early 20s around the country is, is a remarkable movement. Because there is an argument made, Patsy, by people on the social conservative slash Catholic side, which is that the homogeneity of the old Ireland has been replaced by homogeneity of the new Ireland and that it's equally difficult. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with this part of it, but the argument is made that it's equally difficult to be a dissident on the other side now as it was in the old days. um, Well, I mean, Fianna Fáil is interesting in this context. Um, Quite a significant number of the parliamentary party took a very strong stance for no during the referendum campaign, much more so than was the case of Fine Gael. Uh, uh, it is perceived to be an older party in terms of age, profile, of, certainly of its, of its TDs. Mm. It's more certainly more <coughs> rural. Yeah. Uh, now, its leader has gone one way and the party, it would, would appear, a significant number of the party have remained as they were. So, I mean, there's a possibility there, uh, future-wise. Well, uh, recent electoral results in, in the UK and the US show that, you know, you can win with an older, rural, more conservative vote. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the, I, I mean whether Fianna Fáil will actively... Uh, particularly with the, the way the leadership is, is, is going in one direction and the rest of the party are significant element of the party going in there will actually take that position. It's very hard to say. I don't know if they'll have time anyhow to now in the next general election. But there's an interesting evolution possibly happening there. How much of this, Anya, is stuff that Irish people talk about rather than do anything about? What I'm wondering is, I mean, we know that there have been some constitutional changes and yes. Patsy mentioned a couple of others which are impending yeah. and perhaps one or two others which we might consider like the, like, like the preamble to the Constitution mm. as well. They seem to me, we had a little argument about this very subject last week in our studio, but they seem to me to be largely symbolic. The, uh, the position of women in the home is not something that's had a legal consequence in a courtroom that I'm aware of over the last, over, over the last several decades. Blasphemy perhaps does have more direct, directly legal consequences. Well, women in the, well, women in the home for my, for my generation. <laughs> for your generation. Yeah, for my time, generation. You weren't was, allowed to get a job. I, no, I was a civil mm. servant. I had to resi- resign on marriage and I was out of work for uh, a decade before Indeed. the marriage. So it was used as an excuse for that. Although when, when the policy was changed, nobody was able to say, oh no, you know, it's it in the constitution. because of Europe, if It I was ca- totally because of Europe. Mm. It was, was for absolutely, totally. Yeah. We went into Europe in 72 and the marriage ban was lifted in 73. Yeah. So it was entirely to do with Europe. So, I mean, so then I suppose the, the question is, do we need to take a broader look at the constitution as a whole, which was framed in a very in a very different yeah. Ireland? And I look, think, yeah, look, I think we again, should we have a new one? I mean, I sat for two years years on the Constitution Review Group, chaired by T.K. Whittaker, a wonderful man. It was a great experience. What surprises me is that so little has happened. Mm. I know, and you know, it's the, the Constitution Review Group, and then there was a whole series of other reports, and then there was the Citizens' Assembly, and um, are we going to put it off forever? The preamble, we had 
considerable discussion about the preamble. We had considerable discussion about the place of the women in the home, and the, cons- the report is there. You know, you can, mm. you know, it's a for, good for the benefit of our very, listeners, the preamble makes reference to the most high, most holy trinity. Mm. Uh, I mean, you can probably read it off. Or speak well, it off I can't off the top of my head now. Don't <laughs> do that to me, you. <laughs> I mean, a, a, an infinitely more important thing in the constitution, certainly infinitely more important than blasphemy, which I find remarkable that there's no political interest about, is this idea that people still have to take religious oaths. So it really means mm. that you cannot, in good conscience, be the president of this country and be an atheist. Or Chief, the, the, Chief Justice. Or Chief Justice. Mm. That to me is a remarkable thing. I mean, as a as a person of faith, I mean, I don't want anyone who does isn't religious having to swear on the Bible. Yeah, you know, to me, it seems remarkable that there's so no the fact that we institutionalise hypocrisy in that way is For that something sure. specifically specifically Irish? It seems. To I think we're very way. good at it. I think we're very good at agreeing not to notice things I or agreeing not to know certain facts. Hypocrisy knows no nationality. <laughs> but I mean, we do it pretty well. <laughs> the irony, uh, I, I try personally, but the for instance, I thought one of the ironies about the the, uh, the recent referendum is that polling booths had a copy of the Bible yes. <laughs> on the, uh, there for yeah. people to swear yeah. that mm. they were who they were mm. if needs be. Mm. So I mean, there's an inherent contradiction there, a traditional one. But there you are, yeah. Michael. Finally, maybe I'll, I'll come sure. to you. I mean, what what hope do you have, or what expectation do you have that a future Ireland, let's say in ten or fifteen years' time, might both reflect the you know the the values and the beliefs which which you espouse, but do so in a way which is more appropriate to the people as a whole, as well as as well as as well as Catholics. Yeah, I think what we need to be striving to for is an Ireland that's pluralist. I mean, one of the greatest uh, developments of my adult life in Ireland has been the phenomenal multiculturalism that's uh, everywhere uh, to be seen now and the fact that we've handled it very well. Including a range of other religions which, which weren't absolutely. here Absolutely, and, and one of the interesting things about the vast majority of immigrants who come here, they are actually religious, you know, so uh, they're changing the religious demographic but it, it, it still will mean that the country will be by and large quite a religious country. We've handled that transition very, very well. We've had all kinds of predictions from other parts of Europe about how awful it would be and we wouldn't be able to manage it. We've managed it very, very well so far. I would like to see us managing pluralism properly, a place where everyone can have their, their values respected, have their views respected, feel that they're able to uh, to talk in the public sphere. I get it now that there's a kind of reaction to the overdominance of the church in the past. And look, sometimes people t- say to me, oh, you'd love to live in the 1950s. I would have hated the 1950s. And I think actually as a Northern Catholic, I think it's more difficult for us to understand as well, because in the, in the 1980s, 1990s, if you were a Northern Catholic, you could buy condoms if you wanted to. Sure, your church would frown upon you, but you could do it if you wanted. You could get divorced if you wanted to. Sure, your church would frown on you, but but you could actually do it. Catholics in the Republic, it was such a hot house. They couldn't do anything like that. So I think we have to understand the reaction to that over-dominance of the church that was there in the past. But I hope we'll be able to find, a, find, find an equilibrium where people can, you know, truly live and let live. Michael, Anya, Patsy, thanks very much for coming in today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Jennifer Ryan and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes.com or your preferred podcast provider. We always welcome a review or a rating or a share because it helps to get us out to a broader audience. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can get me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 